Welcome to Prophetic Voices Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation. Welcome back. I'm so glad you could join us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing some of the readings for Advent 2, focusing particularly on our Gospel lesson and Canticle 16, the Song of Zechariah. With me today, I have three wonderful guests. The Reverend Jazzy Bostock is priest in the Diocese of Hawaii, serving St. John the Baptist Episcopal Church and Malukia Lutheran Church, both on the west side of Oahu. Welcome, Jazzy. The Reverend Dr. Hilary Raining is the rector of St. Christopher's Church in Gladwin, Pennsylvania, and the creator of The Hive Online Spirituality and Wellness Digital Community, www.thehiveapiary.com. Welcome, Hillary. And last but not least, the Reverend Canon Lydia Bucklin is from Marquette, Michigan, and is the Canon to the Ordinary for Discipleship and Vitality with the Episcopal Diocese of Northern Michigan. Welcome, Lydia. What is important for us to keep in mind this Advent? This Advent is um, the first one we're trying to do in this weird new stage of COVID where we're all trying to reemerge into something, even though it's still going on. Um, and I, I, giving, given my background in psychology, one thing I really want us to remember during this Advent is we are not just dealing now with people's trauma responses. We're also going to start dealing with people's PTSD responses. Um, which can be very messy. Uh, trauma responses often are kind of self-contained and try to hold on for dear life. When people start reemerging in PTSD responses, uh, it can it can be emotions everywhere. It can be people trying to find new health, and it can be very joyful, um, and it can be very frustrating and all over the place. So I I think of that with Advent as we think about not just the coming of Christ, but the coming of Christ again and how we are also trying to reemerge into new life. And that I think is a very important thing to keep in mind this Advent. I've been saying lately that I feel like an empty gas tank, filling my tank $2 at a time, which I remember from my college days very well, <laughs> where you just, I just am like running on empty a lot of the time. Um, and as I was reflecting on the readings and on the collect in particular, um, and which made me think of Advent in general, this um, this invitation to wait joyfully for Jesus to come. Like it made me think about, you know, when I'm away on a on a work trip, and my husband's trying to get the kids uh, to clean the house for my return, and they're so excited because they're like, "Mommy's coming home! Everybody, like, clean the house!" And it's like. They like they enjoy doing something that's kind of tedious, um, but it's good energy versus like, you know, I remember days where it was like, ah, my mom's coming home. Everybody like get your stuff together, <laughs> like clean quick. And it's like this anxious, frenzied, like, um, like just horrible energy. Um, and so I think about like that waiting and getting ready, like with joy is a really different um approach than this like repent repent you got to get everything in order christ is coming like get all our ducks in a row um which isn't really a a welcoming state 
for Jesus or for us, you know, into this next season. So I want to lean more towards that, um, that sense of anticipation towards, you know, our nurturing, caring, beloved Jesus, um, like fully welcoming him back home. I love that you talked about um, joyful waiting. I, I think I have an idea of Advent in my mind, which is about joy and Christmas and preparing. And then I have an experience of like preaching in Advent, which is like waiting and doldrums and like actually not that much of the happy nativity story <laughs> until we get there, right? And so like, I'm always like, okay, I'm excited. I love Christmas, but actually Advent is really tough for me because it's all of this like repentance and um, yeah, trying to sort of be somewhere that we're not yet, right? Being both there and not yet there, which is like very Christian, but I really struggle with. I want to, you know, I'm kind of all the way on or all the way off. And Advent is this like low simmer um, that gets us to Christmas. And so that joyful waiting, I love that example because I have a really hard time knowing what joyful waiting looks like. Um, waiting for me most often looks really, really painful. <laughs> I'm just not a particularly patient person. I'm not very good at waiting, um, particularly on someone else or something else that I can't control. I always think about it like it's hamblecha or vision quest, which is a bad way to put it. More like crying or calling for a vision. You're not waiting and actively you're actively waiting and there's like you know you're praying and you're doing things and you're thinking and hoping to get this discernment about what your life is up to and get some guidance about where you're going that's kind of how i think about it there's so many times where i felt like i'm running on empty and i can only fill it up like two dollars at a time um and when gas is like four dollars a gallon you know that's that's that's, that's like five or ten miles you know and some cars you're not gonna get very far um, There's a reason I said $2. <laughs> right, right. So what social justice messages are like coming up for you this this season? What are, what are you noticing in your communities or in your congregations? Here in Northern Michigan, we have been focusing a lot on listening to the truth, um, particularly around the role that the church has played um, in colonizing, in silencing, in um, really not living the gospel well. Um, and so part of that for us is this message of like, slow down, stop doing all the fancy performative stuff that we know how to do well as a church. And like, let's sit with one another and particularly with our neighbors who have some things to tell us that um, might be hard to hear, um, but that are going to change us for the better. And it takes companionship to do that. Um, and, you know, it's interesting thinking about that work in in correlation with Advent, um, with this time of, of waiting, but also with the need to connect with the community outside of the church, um, you know, especially with our Indigenous siblings here in Northern Michigan, um, we're, we're recording healing stories of survivors of boarding schools, and um, that's a very sacred time um, that we're having to learn to treat with tender care and also to not pat ourselves on the backs and say, oh, aren't we so great as a church for listening to these stories, but to actually get out of the way 
um, and to not control, but we've handed that over to our native siblings to say, actually, we'll help fund this and we'll, um, we want to support this, but we get that, especially for those of us who are white in the church, like this now, once we do that, like we've got to let go of it. And, and then we've got to come back together, you know, after the waiting, after the listening and figure out how we're going to move together forward. Um, and that's unknown and that's scary because we don't know what reparations looks like. Um, and our native community doesn't know what reparations looks like either. And we've got to kind of figure that out together. And where's Christ in all of that, mm. you know? Mm. Yeah. Beautifully said. I, I was thinking a lot about this question with the gospel reading in particular, um, the, the way Luke starts us off is a, is a list, not just of, um, not just of like the, the empire's rulers at the time. Luke also gives us a, a picture of who's ruling the religious uh, places of the time as well. Right. So we get a list of the empire as well as religion, and they're really cozy in this, um, in this introduction. And then we get then we get John coming out of the desert and the, the desert in the Christian tradition has, and the, the Jewish tradition has always been this place of uh, transformation, right? We, we think about like the desert mothers and fathers going into the desert. And we often say, oh, they went there because of protesting, uh, protesting problems in the church. But you, you may go to the desert in protest. Maybe John did, maybe all the prophets did, but you don't stay in the desert because you're protesting, right? You, you, you actually transform in the desert. So you can come back and make some changes to a world that's both problematic in, in its empire and in its religion, especially when the two are kind of interchangeable. That in my particular setting, that's, um, that's where I hear John really calling us because we've spent, we spent a lot of the pandemic, like many churches start starting to have real well, continuing to have real conversations around uh, gun violence, around issues of racial reckoning, you know, on uh, issues around the election. Um, what does it mean to be a Christian and and uh, should you get vaccinated or not, right? You know, so all these questions. And then it's, I would have to say in the last mm, two months, not a lot of that conversation has happened. Uh, I think people have uh, gotten to the point where they're like, whoa, well, maybe we can rest on our laurels for a little bit because we're so exhausted by this. And then here comes John the Baptist every year coming back around being like, I'm sorry, what laurels do you think you're sitting on? Uh, you know, I, you look an awful lot like the Empire Church, you know, saying these sorts of things to us. Um, so I hear this as a particularly timely call to repent because that, that word repent, of course, means that metanoia means to change, to have a change of heart, change of mind, to turn around and go in a completely different direction. And I think there's, there's a lot of different directions we could be going in right now if we weren't so comfortable and cozy looking like the empire over here. So that's, that's one piece that we're working on. Hmm. The church I serve, one of them, the Episcopal one, is called St. John the Baptist. Um, and I think it's so aptly named. It's a largely Kanakamoli um, community, Kanakamoli church. Hey, Episcopals, this is producer Polly here. Jazzy just used the phrase Kanakamoli, which means native or indigenous Hawaiian. So what she means is that most of the people who attend her church, St. John's, are native or indigenous Hawaiian. 
Now back to Jazzy. So when I think about preaching social justice in that context, it sounds very different um, because I don't necessarily think it's the same call to um, repentance or to that kind of um, separating church from empire, although that's important work. I think it's much more a call to keep showing up. And there's a lot about John that I often think, number one, the guy is like so weird, right? He's wearing his camel hair vest and he's like eating bugs and he's showing up like yelling at people to repent. But the incredible thing is that people listen to him. Like how weird is that? How charismatic must this guy have been? to be showing up in this like weird way, yelling at people that they've done wrong, that they're sinners. And they're like, yeah, we're totally gonna follow you into the desert. And like, we wanna get washed in that Jordan River. Like, I just, I wish I had known him because <laughs> I don't know any preacher who could yell to people about how wrong they were and how much they needed to repent and have a huge following. Um, but in his example and in thinking about the community that I serve, I think there is a lot um, to be said for encouraging the Kanaka Maoli voices in the church to speak up. And I think there have been so many years for indigenous folk um, where we've kind of checked our indigeneity at the door um, and not brought that wholeness of self into church meetings, you know, been part of church governance, but like without that one part that might have been problematic or um, that might have caused a stir. And I think the witness of John bringing his wholeness and like causing a stir and yelling at the church, sometimes I kind of think um, indigenous folks and folks of color, we need to yell a little bit. We need to be willing to say, look, this is wrong. Um, you did wrong. And there is repentance. There is forgiveness. Um, but I, so I guess I'm, I come at that message a little bit differently in thinking about the folks that I serve and the, um, yeah, the, the place that they find mm. themselves in that historical trauma. Mm. This week, Jazzy, I love that you shared that from your perspective because it made me think of the canticle right so what i love the most about the canticle is what happens before it actually because it's zechariah and elizabeth and zechariah is like this old dude and when elizabeth gets pregnant zechariah is like no 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 this can't be la 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 and the angel's like shush you shush and zechariah cannot speak again until <laughs> I cannot speak again until Elizabeth takes, they take the baby for circumcision and they say, oh, you're going to name it Zechariah right after his father. And Elizabeth says, no, it, this baby will be John. And they say, no, no, surely it's going to be Zechariah. What do you say? And they give the, they give him a tablet and he writes, his name is John. And then he's allowed to speak again. Mm. But, and I love like this idea of like the old, I mean, it wouldn't have been white, but like the old man in power, right? Like had to just be shushed for that time being um, to allow the spirit to move into and for John to to be birthed and to become who he needed to be, which 
oh, that feels right right now for where what maybe what we need to be thinking of as a church. And I'd love to extend that because I, I got so excited about what you said that it's it's he's able to talk when he's like when he has something worth saying, right? And what's what's beautiful about it is that the Holy Spirit descends upon him and he starts to do this. And and that Holy Spirit keeps showing up and canticles keep happening. These beautiful poetic songs keep happening. Mary will do it with the Magnificat. Like we hear it in different parts where the, it says the Holy Spirit descended upon them and then bam, they start singing. And why I think that's important is because when when you have something to say is something that people should start considering more carefully before they start mm-hmm. opening their mouth. And and do they feel the Holy Spirit inspiring their words? And so there's this high level of discernment that I, I think comes when people are uh, actually ready to stand up and say something that I, I I think our Quaker brothers and sisters have this probably more in spades than we mm-hmm. do because it's just a part of the tradition that you wait until the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, they have this great Quaker expression that, you know, before you speak, make sure what you're about to say will improve upon the silence. <laughs> <laughs> And that, that I think is so key to who's speaking, what are they saying, and when are they doing it? And I think you've highlighted that just beautifully. So let's talk about the canicle a little bit. Um, how does this canicle, I think we talked about it in terms of repairing the breach, but how does this canicle call us toward right relationship? Um, or what things do we notice that it's calling us to? The first thing that jumped out at me when it comes to relationships was thinking about how this is a father talking globally about the world, right? You know, there's this cosmic feel to it, the light to all nations, et cetera. And he's also talking to his son. Like there's this very intimate, and you, my child, shall be called the prophet of the most high. Like there's this beautiful tie-in here that um, in so many traditions, so many ind- indigenous traditions, certainly um, within within my family, as well as even even the yogic tradition, talks about the blessing of the parent onto their child, mm-hmm. and how there's a special weight that 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 blessing carries. Um, I think for our churches, I think we need to start reclaiming the idea that the blessing we're leaving for our children and putting upon our our, our children in our midst carries a special weight. You know, that these these places of sending, because they're also in the temple here, right? You know, this this place of sending and blessing is precious and, and altogether too rare. You know, we hear of social scientists telling, uh, telling people that what children and adults, frankly, really need are these places of cross-generational uh, growth, right? These places where they interact with people who become their... Uh, adoptive grandparents and aunties and uncles, right? You know, and, and those blessings I think are, are near and dear. So it just has me thinking about that beauty of blessing that we can give to one another. I love that. I've been um, thinking about the word free as it shows up twice, right? To set us free from the hands of our enemies, free to worship him without fear. Um, I just listened to Tarana Burke's uh, audiobook Unbound. I think the subtitle is something like My Story of Liberation and the Birth of the Me Too Movement. Um, and as she, it's a beautiful book, and she narrates it really beautifully. Um, but her stories of liberation, as she winds them through and traces sort of different defining moments in her life, 
always, you know, it's not like a one-time event. It's not that she gets liberated. She's unliberated and she gets liberated. Um, and neither is it that way for any of us, right? We don't get unbound all of a sudden. Um, but these like seeds of freedom that um, are wound through this canticle make me sort of think about the seeds of freedom that even in what is sometimes a traumatic history in the church, those seeds are also there. Um, and sometimes our work is to like give them space to grow, right? To sort of clear out what is around them, what's choking them and give them space to grow and to plant whatever seeds of freedom for our people that we serve and for ourselves um, that we can, right, in our lives. And so just that, thinking about that kind of um, journey, that trajectory, that like lifelong process of transformation, um, of unbinding, of becoming, of living into, um, I think it's connected in certain ways to blessing, but that word free is really striking a nerve with me. That's so beautiful, Jazzy. The, um, you know, what sat with me was this reminder of, and again, that the word tender compassion. And I just thought of tenderness, like you were saying, Hillary, with the father speaking to the son, like this tender sense of like, to remember and to remember that original covenant with God, which is basically like God's with us. Like we don't need to be afraid. God is with us. We've got, we've, we're never alone. We've got each other. We were made for each other. Um, and if we love one another and love God, like that's all, that's all we need to get through. Um, and there's just that, that deep sense of love and reverence and care um, that, I think provides, you know, the water for those seeds to grow and that space for the liberation to happen. And isn't that amazing? I mean, I think, I think we hear, especially as these canticles in the early part of Luke, both this one and, and the Magnificat and the, even the Noc Dimittis, like you hear these. And I think, I think so often it's like, wow, what a call to reformation. What a call to revolution. Many of these are right. Like we're talking about world bending stuff and, um, and yet it's it's with these precious moments right here with Zechariah, you know, here and then Mary's Magnificat, you know, it's like a lullaby almost to Jesus in a way. And then when you hear the Nook Dimittis, right, you know, it's this prophet who's been longing to see the Messiah and here he is holding a little baby, right? Like there's that that grandeur of the universe being turned on its head in the in the gaze of a adults in the face of a small baby's face, you know, like in the love that's there. It's just, it's just how I think God must work, you know, and the, these, the tender love that God has for us uh, is enough then to remake the world entirely. Hmm. I was thinking about at the end, it says to shine on those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. And that was like how it ends, but all the peace before that or the parts before that, are all about the justice piece and it made me think of that um like no justice no peace and then k-n-o-w no justice no peace and it made me think about like if we know the justice we will know the peace and that's kind of like I, that's what i thought of when i read this canticle who needs to be set free today or what does our church need to set free 
So the last line of the um, canticle about guiding our feet into the way of peace really struck me because it's not guiding our feet into a destination of peace, right? Or taking us to a land of everlasting peace that we're going to be in forever, but it's guiding us into a journey or into a way of being. Um, And I think in all social justice work and reconciliation work and racial justice work particularly, there's this sense of like, okay, what's the end goal, right? To what end are we doing this work? And I think, you know, it's hard to set that free. I love a good plan. I love a blueprint. (laughs) I love a timeline. Um, But we need to set free that notion that we're going to a destination or that we even know what the end of our work is going to look like. Because I think the invitation that Jesus so often gives us is into the way, into a kind of discipleship, into a journey. Um, And getting the church, kind of big C writ large, the church, on board with a journey rather than a destination is hard. but I think it would be transformative if we went into the work we do, not thinking that we're going to get somewhere or move the needle from A to B, but that we're going to walk in a different way, that we're going to allow our feet to be guided somewhere that we don't even know where it is yet. Um, But I think it's a kind of like opening of the fist and letting go um, of those plans that we so, so, so tightly cling to. I really resonated with that. And it, it, your, your words had me thinking, you know, Advent really f- makes us face the difference between expectation versus anticipation, right? Like the expectation versus anticipation, right? Because when you're expecting a Messiah to come in a certain way, um, you know, military might, or, you know, coming in a, a certain package, um, you're going to, you're going to expect certain things and be disappointed if God wants to show up in a different way, right? But if you're anticipating that God's going to come and it's probably going to surprise the heck out of you and it probably isn't, it's not, um, you're not clinging to some sort of desired outcome or uh, a desire at all, right? You just, all your desire is bound up in waiting for the return of God. That's a very different thing altogether uh, than an expectation. And I think that's something that the church, just exactly what you were saying, needs to learn how to do is, is to say, all right, what's God going to do next? And can we expect that? Can we anticipate that rather than expect it's going to be in a certain format? That's, that's difficult. But if we can start to do that, then maybe we'll actually get a hold of what Advent's actually trying to teach us in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, the presiding bishop has named it in his three-year plan coming up for this next triennium saying that we have to no longer choose the way of empire. And Mm. um, there's this awesome little booklet called The Celebration of Smallness that one of our bishops from the Diocese of Northern Michigan, Samuel Wiley, wrote a while back. And, you know, he, and in it, he was, so he was, had been Dean of General Seminary and was called as Bishop of Northern Michigan. And everybody said, don't go to that diocese. It's career suicide. You'll make less money. They've got nothing. They're poor. They're going to die. You're going to be responsible for the death of a diocese. And he said, 
no, I'm, I'm, I gotta go. And, um, talked about the celebration of smallness and that Jesus is called to a stable, not to a palace. And that, you know, we're Mm. called to poverty. Like we are called actually to give thanks for the meagerness that we have and to be relational with one another, um, and to live that way as the church. Um, and, you know, he, he, in this little pamphlet or thing that he wrote, it talks, it's like very condemning and says like the church sided with Rome as soon as it possibly could. Mm-hmm. And like, there really is no social injustice that the church hasn't partaken in itself. Like we've hoarded our wealth. We've, um, you know, professionalized the ministry. We've taken away the ministry of all the baptized and put it in a select few. And we've hoarded the sacraments. Um, and we've made theological education a privileged elitist, uh, thing that many mm. of us are in debt for if we even had the support to go do it. And I mean, there's a lot of stuff here that if we want to go back to the turn things right, you know, flatten out our paths, uh, it's going to look different for us. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it, it feels scary because we don't know what that's going to look like, but I think we need to name some of that, you know, that we've acted out of affluence and not out of courage. And um, I think we need to stand together in courage um, as a church uh, because God made covenants with people, not with institutions. And so if we're going to be the people of God, then, um, you know, we, we could spend some time actually talking about some of this too as a church, because I, I, I don't know that we are honest about how complicit we are in some of, some of this. Mm. Couldn't agree more. Again, that's why I love how Luke puts in his beginning, you know, into, into this world, uh, into this world of both the empire, he names the leaders of the empire and the leaders of the temple, right? Like it's, it's not just politics that need to be overturned. It's, it's the piece of empire that we've adopted, that we have just glommed onto within our own systems. In Lakota, we have this phrase, wo Lakota, which is the state when all things are in right relationship, us with ourselves and us with creation and us with each other and us with the creator. And that wo at the beginning of that word means that it's an action, means that it's something that you have to do. It doesn't just happen. The Holy Spirit has to come and make that right relationship happen. We have to be active participants and move in that direction. That really made me think about that and mm. how it's not this passive thing, but it's this active. I don't think we do very well listening to voices that are in the wilderness that are not in the church. Mm. Um, I think in the church, there's kind of a like, well, either you're with us or you're not with us. And if you're not with us, it's like, we don't have to listen. Um, you know, I, I think of a, um, lecture conversation in seminary, um, D. Ray McKesson, who at that time was incredibly active with the Black Lives Matter movement, um, came to talk to us and he said, like, are y'all going to preach about us from your pulpit or are you going to come and join us in the street? And it was such a good, I mean, clearly it stayed with me, that question, that um, um, convicting, right? That call to repentance. And I think we're okay at listening to voices from within our institution, even if they're different, but we're not very good at listening to anyone who's not 
um, Christian or even Episcopalian, right? Mm, oh, mm-hmm. if you're not kind of part of what we believe, then you might not have anything valuable to say, which is ridiculous, right? Because there was no like test of faith for John. It wasn't like, well, are you from, you know, the right kind of Jewish community? And are right. you attending the same temple that we're attending? And how are your parents standing in the synagogue? And do you pay your tithe, right? There's all of these kinds of hoops that we make people jump through to prove their, like, worthiness um, or the importance of what they might say before we're willing to listen. And I think John comes as such a, like, contrary character. Um, and yet, you know, there, there is a listening, something about, his charisma, something about his message rings so true that it can't be ignored. Um, and I think we could all learn something from Lakota culture because very rarely do we look at difference as sacred or good mm. um, or even acceptable, right? Mm. All kinds of difference, unfortunately, is really demonized. Um, and there's so much fear that comes up around difference. I wonder, uh, I, I listened to that, to the question, kind of it flips in my mind to say, so what was happening back outside the desert that was making people so unsettled that they went to John mm. to get that different way? Like, right, so something was stirring among the people, among like the the, the common world or how things were um, that was... Un, not okay like that they said i i'm seeking something else i'm my heart is uneasy and and they felt called to um to open their hearts and their ears to this crazy man out in the wild because they saw other people being transformed and then they longed for it and so that's something that i find really interesting that i think we're at a state right now as a church but i think also as people we're like we're at this time of reckoning where people are like, I'm actually not okay with the status quo. Like I'm actually not okay with the divisiveness and uh, the othering and the divisions. Um, And I want to live intentionally in another way. And John offered this other way and modeled like, even as crazy as it was, like what could happen if we took a step more towards what God's dream actually was for us. Um, which is the same dream, you know, Zechariah has for his baby and the same dream Mary has for her baby, which was like this simple way of being at peace and in love with one another. I wrote a book on confession. So it's always like whenever I hear these passages and I hear I hear about uh, reconciliation and repentance, I, I hear so much of the reconciliation of a penitent piece coming into it. And what is our theology on shame and sin and all of this? And there's this great line in form two of reconciliation of a penitent where the the confessor says, I have wandered long. I've wandered long in the land that is waste, right? You know, pulling up this idea of, of, um, of this desert mindset, but again, not to shame the person, but to say, and, and now I'm forging a way back. My, my thinking here is that there's a, there's a lot of parts within ourselves that we don't listen to and we don't give voice to because we think they have, they've wandered too far away in the desert that we can't reclaim them. 
that we're too ashamed of, that, that uh, we just have now let the shame that's external be internalized. And I think it keeps us from doing the hard work of, of, um, of, of welcoming others in. Because if we, are, if we are saying there are parts of ourselves that are other, that cannot be accepted, that cannot be listened to, and cannot be redeemed, then we're going to do the same thing to other people too. Hmm. And, and so there's a big piece of this repentance piece where it's John is calling, you know, he'll call kings and empires to this repentance, and he'll call individuals to this repentance. Um, and so what are the parts in ourselves that we also need to welcome? Because they're the parts when we welcome home, the angels rejoice, right? Another line from that, from the reconciliation piece that the, it's the part where we start learning and start healing. And, and we know, when we no longer embrace ourselves as uh, shameful and to be, to be ignored and to be suppressed, then we can start and do that for other people as well. And so there's a piece of this that's both global and individual. That global individual um, connection that you just made in repentance and welcoming ourselves home and a kind of calling to wholeness of self is echoed, I think, in what you said earlier about this like global kind of change of cosmology, change of universe in Jesus that is also in the face of this one tiny baby. Um, just that, I hear that echoing and that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's how, I just think it's how it works, right? Because the sin that we're, we deal with, the sin that, that John is, it wants to talk about is cosmic. It is, you know, it's the stuff that we're going to need the Holy Spirit and God's help with. And it's corporate, it's sexism, it's racism, it's poverty, it's justice, and it's individual. It's the stuff that keeps us from being able to, to shine as God has made us, right? So when you see those, they line up also in our baptismal covenant, right? Where we renounce the forces of Satan and all wickedness, and then we, then we renounce the stuff that keeps the, uh, the, the group at, in the wrong, and then we then renounce the stuff that's going to keep us from the love and, of God. And so I think, there's, I think that's how God works. It's in the macro and the micro all together, and, and that's, that's where repentance helps us find the joy. One of you had said that John was leading us to this other way. What would our other way look like? You know, as a church, if we're being led to this other way, if we're being called to this other way, because we know you've talked a little bit about the pre words from your previous bishop, what would our other way look like for us? One of the things I was thinking about is like for me, I feel like as preachers, we always want to preach these comforting sermons. I think it really depends on who we're preaching to. Like I will preach differently to a native congregation than I do to a majority white one. Um, but like, we always want to preach these comforting conversations. And sometimes you got to make people a little uncomfortable in these seats and you want them to squirm a little bit. Or Jazzy, when you had talked, you said you don't just want to preach about it. You also want them to go out and be a part of it. So like, what would our other way be? So I used to, as a young adult in particular, would be so uncomfortable with conversations around sin or repentance or atonement. Like I, it was like wounding to me of like, who are you to judge me? Like back away, <laughs> like you have no right. And as I've gotten a little older, um, I embrace it a little more in that recognizing like Hillary was saying the corporateness of it like the sense of the brokenness of like we are all broken 
and that's okay. Like that's also beautiful. I had a little debate back and forth with one of my colleagues lately. We were writing the liturgy for our diocesan convention and like the closing litany, I had written something like accept our broken offerings. And she said, but they're not broken. They're perfect. Like everything we offer is perfect. And I got what she was saying. And I was like, I need I need to say that my offerings are broken. Like, I just need to put it out there. Like, I can't, I can't, like, as a three on the Enneagram and achiever, you know, I, so much of my self-worth is built on perfection and doing things well and pleasing other people. And like, there's something about us together saying we are a broken people and can we just be vulnerable together and real together? Like when I was in Iowa, we started this, um, pop-up church called Breaking Bread with particularly with young adults, but really it was appealing to lots of folks. And it mostly started from a bunch of young adults saying like, honestly, I can't come to church Sunday morning because I might be hungover. I don't have any money to put in the plate. I'll come back to church when I get my together. But you know, they were like, I can't, I know what is expected of me in church on Sunday morning. And when I can give you that, I'll come back. But for now, I sure would love to have a community where I can just bring like my messed up life. It goes back to that expectation versus anticipation, right? I know what I, what's expected about uh, for me to come to church. I'm expected to be uh, clean cut. I'm expected in many places to be white. I'm expected to be heterosexual. Mm-hmm. I'm expected to be um, rich enough to put something in the offering plates. I'm expected to be literate to the point where I can juggle three books at once and know what right. the heck you're talking about about that's expectation and their right to say i can't come because we're expecting something of them instead of being anticipation of of welcoming them in as welcoming jesus himself right you know like Mm. like that's the it's right back to that piece if we are expecting people to be a certain way um they shouldn't come if we are anticipatorily waiting for them to come then we're going to welcome them with open arms. It's so it's so advent of you to say that. I thought it was just you're just right on. Thank you. It's so advent of me. I've never been complimented <laughs> in that way. I'll take it. <laughs> but there is, I mean, so to answer the question more directly, Shaniqua, like what would be what would that mean to live in that way? I think would mean to make space for people to bring their whole selves, mm-hmm. um, their real selves, as our friend Sandra Montes would say. Like, mm-hmm. let's be real. Let's be. Let's make space where we can be real. And that would be reflected in liturgy. That would be reflected in um, how we spend time together and how we use our space. Um, But I think that that's exciting. And that is actually joyful. Like seeing someone authentically be themselves is like to see them shine. And like, that's a, that's a place you want to be. That actually draws people into the wilderness. I also think I really appreciate Lydia, what you shared about that you used to take offense to repentance. Um, I think I have too, but I think part of this new way is like recasting and re-understanding what repentance is, right? That it's not just saying, oh, I'm so sorry, or I'm so bad, and like sitting in the shame of it, or like really self-flagellating, which I think is what it has been for a lot of Um, Christian history. And that has been how folks understand repentance and how we understand sin as if it is intrinsically tied to shame and couldn't be um, experienced in any other way. And Hillary, what you are doing as you talk about that metanoia and the um, 
confession of the penitent, right? This kind of re-welcoming, re-embracing these parts of ourselves. That is so different, so, so, so different than the mainstream Christian message we hear about sin and shame. Mm. Um, And so I think part of the way for us might not even be sort of changing what we talk about or changing our liturgy, but like deepening our understanding of it and being willing to be open to different ways of, of using the word sin, right? And using the word repentance. Um, if you listen to, you know, any mainstream Christian radio station where I am, it's 95.5 The Fish, um, they're going to tell you about shame and sin and how wrong and bad you are and that the only way is to pray to Jesus who's gonna you know wash your crimson stain white as snow and that is such a limited and basic understanding of what repentance and confession and forgiveness can look like and so I think part of the way that we might be asked to be changed or transformed is to take these ancient beautiful concepts and restore their complexity talk about their beauty Mm. um, and not let them be so reductive and so sort of boiled down into something that doesn't have a shape or a substance anymore and it's just like mush i think we've so much of the time sort of simplified things or thought we've simplified things for our congregation and in fact that is more complicated to understand at least to me like how a crimson stain is washed white as snow through the blood of jesus is like a far more complicated idea than the idea that metanoia that repentance actually turns you right and it is a returning um and so i just think like kind of reclaiming the beautiful ancestry that we have in Christianity, which has so often been boiled down and like mushed up and made into something that is actually much less beautiful and much less meaningful than it could be. I love the way you put all of that. And it was actually, it, it, it points me in the direction of of how I would answer the question of what will what will it look like, right? You know, what, what might we what might we hope for in this anticipation? Um, because I tend to to look back into our our blood memory ancestry of the faith and say, like, what do we what do we have when we've faced these moments before? Because we have we see these cycles every five hundred years in Christianity where we have to turn the soil over again. Um, and you know, the first one are the desert mothers and fathers. So it fits so beautifully with John because he is in many ways, the prototype of a, of a desert father, right? Who, these people who, who saw us getting pretty cozy with the empire, cause it happens right around this time that they go into the desert and say, wait, there's a, there's a different way. And there's this mystic uprising, right? We see it again with Benedict. We see it again with the Franciscans. Like there's these 500 year markers. And then we see it again, of course, with the Reformation, which was, you guessed it, 500 years ago, right? So we're, we're in this moment where we can be anticipating that God is doing something. She's turning the soil all over again. But we, it means that we get to look back at how our ancestors in the faith have done this. 
and to me, what I see are people who who return to this mystic understanding of God. It, there's often a turn to simplicity, not jettisoning what has come before, but rather saying, okay, what was the what was the meat of this? What was, what was the actual beauty of this, right? You know, it's saying things like, okay, well, of course we need to talk about redemption here because all things have been redeemed. So we need to we need to bring that back into what we're discussing. So I think we have the tools to do this. It's just a matter of actually saying, where, when have we done this before? And when, what can we anticipate God's going to do again for it? And that's, that's probably all we need to do because we're, we're, we're planting the seeds for what God is going to be doing in the next 500-year cycle, which means we won't see it. <laughs> we won't see the trees of the seeds that we're planting right now, which is humbling and hard because means we're in the death part of the rebirth cycle and God, that can hurt, but it's also incredibly exciting because that means we're helping God bring forth and birth this new future. I often think as priests and things, we are midwives. Like we're not creating things, we're there to deliver what's happening. We're there to help the birth. I remember my uncle one time saying uh, ceremonies, and he would talk about liturgy as ceremony. Ceremonies are meant to be experienced. They're not meant to be understood. And it's through that experience of the ceremony that we learn and are in touch with the sacred. And I was thinking, Jazzy, as you were talking about that repentance idea, about like uh, when we do beadwork, we always make one mistake. Mostly it happens on accident. But some people, if you're really good, you have to do it intentionally. But because we aren't meant to be competing with the creator, we aren't perfect. Only the creator is perfect. And I was thinking that too, Lydia, as you were thinking about that. And I'm like, this is a good time to remind people of this because Advent and Christmas is a time when everybody gets all uptight and they're like, oh, look out, liturgy has to be perfect. And oh, that kid just ran out of the aisle and ran up onto the thing. And it's like, that's okay. How is the kid supposed to learn if they don't get to be back there and see what's happening? And I think too, if we think of that idea of sin, uh, it's like as a human being, we under, we understand ourselves to be not perfect. And if anybody doesn't like original sin, that's how I think of it. Of course, we're human. So we're therefore not perfect. Only the creator is perfect. But that doesn't mean we're inherently bad. The creator knew that when she made us, that we're not going to be perfect. If there's any bigger shame inducer, it's the it's the demon of perfectionism, right? You know, that like gets in there because perfectionism isn't isn't just like, oh, I want to do a good job. I'm, I have healthy striving. Perfectionism is this thing where it's like, if I don't get this right, my whole identity is wrapped in this and people are going to know that I'm not perfect. Mm. Right. And it's, it's much more about what are people going to think? And, and I think Advent and Christmas, um, turn this pressure up in a big, big way. I remember even last year when packages were starting to get slowed down, I remember my mom and I talking about it and, and she's like, you know, I just want, I just, my daughter's name is Delia. I just want Delia to know that I love her. And if these things don't get there on time, mm-hmm. is she going to know? And I'm like, man, is that not the culture sinking into us being like, we're only as good as the present we get at the certain time. Right. You know, so I think there's a big piece of, of the commercialization <laughs> of Christmas, which is, you know, I'm not the first person who said that Charlie Brown, but like, mm-hmm. you know, like that, there's such a problem with mm-hmm. that, that, also is equating a religious ceremony <laughs> that when commercial and ceremony go hand in hand, we've got the chance for perfectionism to sneak in there. And that might just be another good preaching avenue somewhere in there. 
I think it's hard now, you know, post COVID, I have a friend who calls it the great disruption, like, you know, the great depression and calls COVID the great disruption, which I love. Um, We don't, we haven't lived through this yet. And so there are, and you know, just like our, our churches are trying to get back to like the good old days of the 1950s. Now we kind of have this, like, let's get back to how it was pre COVID and like, set everything up. And like this Christmas, I know, you know, the congregations <laughs> I work with are really excited to have Christmas again, because we didn't do it last year. Um, and there is that, like, let's, let's, let's recreate it exactly how it was. And like this remembering that, like, we can't go backwards, we can go forward, and everything will be different. Every day is different. Um, and we are co-creators in this with God. And that's a gift we've been given and that has responsibility that we, we get to co-create this space and this time um, into something that's meaningful, into which people can bring their whole selves. And, you know, that that reminder, Hillary, about the 500 years and about how we can see all of our stories through our scriptures and through our ancestors, um, that does feel a bit like a blue plan or a strategy to me, like Jazzy was saying, you know, it would be helpful to have some kind of a plan. Like I actually feel some weight off my shoulders. Like, all right, we got, like, we got this, we got a bit of a plan. We know where we're headed, that we're on the right path. That actually feels like I don't, I don't need to see the end because I've got my friends and we're, we're moving along. We're shuffling along um, together on the shoulders of those who have come before us. And, that feels like enough for me right now with my empty gas tank. It's it's revelation in hindsight, right? You know, like we only see this revelation because we can look back. And and man, again, that is just you know, so adventist of you to say, I'll say it again, because because that's what we're supposed to do in advent. We're supposed to look back and see what God has done in in, in big ways in the incarnation uh in from the start of creation to the way the word was made flesh and how God's going to do it even differently and more amazingly, probably even the, the next time around, right? Cause Advent isn't just about waiting for Jesus at Christmas. It's about waiting for Christ to come again. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we look back to look forward Advent. What suggestions do you have for preaching this text for preachers or lay preachers, or maybe even just talking about it at a Bible study? I think to dig in, we talked about the how, you know, the word sin and repentance maybe have not been easy to talk about in the past, but I love the focus that we've all placed on reclaiming that language and um, understanding it go, as Jazzy so beautifully spoke about going deeper with it. Um, and, and like, let's talk about that. Let's not sugarcoat the, the scriptures that say like, ah, there's fire and there like, will be judged and all of that. Like, let's, let's actually talk about and deal with that. Um, because it doesn't have to be as scary. Um, and, and we need to go there. I like that old preaching adage, you know, they have to know you care before they care about what you know. Um, I think that's particularly important for prophetic preaching. And you have a chance to do that really well with these readings. Mm. Because with the canticle, you have the chance to do that reflection, even in your own life, of where you saw the face of God in the face of a child, right? Or where you felt that love of God, cosmic in nature, in something very small and tender. So that then, when you have laid that foundation of how how 
amazing God's love is and how tender God's love is, you can then turn to the cosmic nature of the need for reconciliation and repentance, right? You know, you can then say, and, and that love that you feel is the love that God feels and think of how, how God is feeling watching, watching us live unreconciled with one another, you know, and then you can turn to social justice like that. And it's that beautiful balance between tenderness and prophetic preaching Mm. that I think you can enter into with a, with the magnificent choice of these readings being in the same lectionary together. I'm going to say something a little different. Um, Shaniqua, I love that you shared about beadwork and that you have to make a mistake. Um, because I think something that preachers should remember for preaching Advent too. listen, it's the second week of Advent. You're probably trying to get Christmas gifts for your family. You're probably already feeling overwhelmed about the kids in the Christmas pageant and who's shown up for rehearsal and who hasn't. <laughs> but like, just be gentle, be so gentle. Um, and I think maybe if we approach repentance and sin with a gentleness, we'll come into it in a different way. Um, you know, with your sermon, plant one seed of freedom, plant one seed of liberation. And if you've done that, you've done a great job. Awesome. I was thinking about that wilderness piece, like maybe talking about a time that you've been in the wilderness or maybe a time you saw someone in the wilderness or even if your church is struggling, which I know a lot of churches are right now. How is our church in the wilderness and what are we crying out for? Like if we're crying out, what are we crying out for? What are we hoping to be transformed into? Well, thank you so much, everybody. It's been great to have you here. I just love this conversation. And thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Well, that's all the time we have today. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. Thanks to our guests, Jazzy, Hillary, and Lydia. Thanks to our production team, especially Chris, Phoebe, Nick, and Polly. If you felt the spirit in our conversation today, I'd love it if you would rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine.